Power up, on air, light on, and we're ready to go. Hi, this is Jordan Rich, and you're tuned to On Mic with Jordan Rich, a podcast featuring conversations with creative, passionate, interesting people, people with stories to tell and stories to share. Got another two-parter for you today with entertainers I believe you'll enjoy meeting. One is a stand-up comedian extraordinaire named Joe Yanetti. Part two will feature two members of a troupe called The Seven Fingers, an arts collective unlike any other. And they'll be opening up at the Cutler Majestic Theater in Boston on September 25th with a show called Passengers. We'll talk with them in part two. But before we get to Joe and the Seven Fingers, let me tell you how you can contact me. Jordan at chartproductions.com. Chart is spelled like a map, C-H-A-R-T. That's the email address, jordan at chartproductions.com. On Twitter, at Jordan WBZ. And on Facebook, we're at Jordan Rich Show. My first guest is a seasoned comedy pro, Joe Yanetti. Has fun with his Italian heritage, his family background, growing up in East Boston. He's wowed audiences all around the world. He's been a guest on dozens of TV shows, has appeared at Caesars Palace in Vegas, Radio City Music Hall, the Kennedy Center, you name it. He's written for and toured with Rosie O'Donnell. He wrote and produced a movie for HBO called Suckers. He appears in the film, and it's based in part on his own life, even a winner of a premier video award for best screenplay in the early 2000s. For the last several years, he's been on the high seas. Joe has become one of the most popular comedians in the world's largest and most prestigious cruise lines. They say the only thing tougher than comedy is dying. Well, a few years ago, Joe was tested and he nearly died. He was struck down with cancer and the healing process was arduous. It changed his outlook on life, as we'll hear. Joe Yanetti, very funny, very real, and very much a friend of mine. So let's go on, Mike. All right, Joe, where does the comedy come from? Honestly, uh, a deep-seated need for love. <laughs> <laughs> just like every other comedy? Yeah, yeah. I just, I remember thinking back when I was a little kid, I remember uh, always feeling unloved, just always felt like people didn't love me and mm. and making people laugh was like approval or whatever. I don't know. I, I was just, I always wanted to be funny. Well, you are, and you are loved here and elsewhere. <laughs> but uh, anybody in the family, an inspiration? Dad, uncle, mom, sister, uh, brother? Show business, yes, not stand-up comedy. Okay. But my mother was a dancer. All right. My mother was a professional dancer traveling around the country when she was like 14 years old. Mm. She was a fantastic dancer. She she would open shows solo. She would close shows by herself if if there was a guy in the show who balanced a woman on his chin in a chair, she'd be sitting in the chair. And uh, she worked all the clubs in Boston, and uh, she talks about them all the time. She's a showbiz trooper. She's a pro. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, but that's – listen, that's applause. That's acceptance, yeah. right? That's oh, yeah. entertaining people. So a little well, bit of Well, my first time ever on stage, the first time I got a round of applause – my very first thought was, how did my mother give this up? <laughs> it was the greatest feeling I've ever had. It is an amazing thing, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's a high that you can only describe to people who know it. Yes. It really is. So um, you have made your career. You've been a professional com comedian and working ships and working clubs all over the place. You yeah. know everybody. When you're embarking on that as a young guy, yeah. Is there are there people saying, Joe, what are you nuts? Stop that. Get a real job. Yeah, one guy, 
it gave me a time limit. He was my dad's best friend, and he used to do my taxes. And after four years in the business, he said, okay, well, we said we'd give it four years. And I was like, oh, you got a mouse in your pocket? Because I never made an agreement <laughs> to put a limit on this. He's like, well, you don't have anything. You have no money. And I was like, yeah, but I got a gigantic photo album of all the places I've been and the people I've met, and I got great stories. And I never let them do my taxes again. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what they say about CPAs, cleaning, pressing, and alteration, right? <laughs> you can use that. Fine. So, so where does it all start for you in terms of geography? You're from this area, Newton. Yeah, no I grew up in East Boston. Okay. And uh, I lived in East Boston until I was an adult. And the first time I moved, kind of, was uh, 1987, 86, 87. I moved, I got an apartment in New York, but I kept my apartment in East Boston. And then in uh, late in 87, I moved to L.A. So I never lived anywhere but East Boston until I went to L.A. And in L.A., obviously pursuing comedy as a, oh, yeah. as yeah. a full-time I, deal. I, uh, they, some guys, big show, they, they, these guys, big management company came to Boston looking for, they were just looking for a venue at first to do. There was a young comedian special where Robin Williams, what, they, these people were Robin Williams' manager, but they had Robin in San Francisco and he introduced a young comic there and they did it all live. They had Richard Belzer, I think, was in New York and he introduced somebody there. In Boston, uh, Stephen Wright was pretty famous by then, and he introduced uh, Barry Crimmins. Up in Toronto, they had, so they were looking for a place. It ended up being the paradise oh, where right. they did it. Okay. But they saw me. We auditioned. They came back and auditioned people. And I had made friends with this guy because of a stripper that I was dating. <laughs> you can't make these up, folks. <laughs> so uh, everyone was like, where can we take this guy after a, a show? Yeah. And I was kind of upset because of the way the show went. But uh, everyone was like, we should take him out to see jazz. We should take him here, take him there. And these three gorgeous women came up to me and said goodbye, gave me a hug and a kiss. And he was like, the guy said, uh, hey, nice fringe benefits with this job, huh? I said, oh, there it was Nick's in Boston. So this, the, that was when the combat zone was in full swing. Yep. I said, oh, there are a few strippers from across the street. And he went, what do you mean? I said, well, we're basically next to the combat zone. And he was, what's that? And I was like, well, it's all strip clubs and everything. I said, can we go there? Hmm. And I had just broken up with a girl who was a dancer at the Naked Eye. Oh, yeah. And it was a very short-lived relationship. But it was fun. And because my brother ratted me out, and he's going out with a stripper, Ma. And my mother said, is your girlfriend a stripper? I said, no. And she said, what's her name? I said, Autumn Blue. <laughs> <laughs> so I took him over there and he was like a kid in a candy store. Oh, wow. And he was in town because Robin Williams was playing at the Lowell Auditorium the next night. So he said, call me and tell me how many tickets you want. So I. I, did, I was very young, so I, you know, I, I told all my friends and the people that were there, and he said, well, how many tickets do you need? And I said, 10. And he said, 10! <laughs> I was like, yeah. And he gave us 10 front row seats. You don't ask, you don't get, right? Yeah. That's great. So that was the guy that sort of brought you... So then 
out uh, there? Or what? He came back and saw me when I, I, I auditioned for the show. Mm-hmm. And he liked what I did, but uh, Barry Crimmins was really close with Stephen Wright. So, and Barry was fantastic. So Barry got the show. But then I went out to L.A. to see this guy. And I did a showcase at the Improv in L.A., and we were sitting outside, and a guy walked up, and he said, Oh, Jim, you just missed him. So whoever this guy was was supposed to be there to see me. And he said, Joe Yanetti, this is Jim McCauley. And it was the guy who booked The Tonight Show. Oh. So I was like, this is going to be easy. <laughs> so I moved to L.A., and it wasn't easy. No, it's never easy. In fact, the the, the old days of Carson, it was always the uh-huh. The goal of every comic in America was to make it to the show. We'll go one step further to make it to the couch, right? Yeah, yeah. But those days are, there well, are I was far booked, between. For, for I was guys. booked on The Tonight Show the last month that Johnny Carson was on, and I got bumped off the show by Bill Cosby. And where is he now? Yeah. I don't even remember. <laughs> I think he was a comedian. Yeah. No, it, he was my hero. You know, he, he's kind of put a huge stain on that now. Right, but right. As a comedian, he was my hero, him so and Richard Pryor. Was that like a crushing blow? Because I'm still not over that. Yeah, it's I'm still be. not. It, that was almost 30 years ago, mm. and I am still not over that. It 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 still hurt because getting on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson was like a stamp on your forehead. Like now, you can call yourself a comedian, mm. and it was a lot harder to get on than it is to get on any show today, any show. You had to be able to do seven minutes, and they wanted you to be able to do it three times. So you had to have three seven-minute spots before they'd put you on because they wanted to make your career. So they'd put you on three times in a year, mm-hmm. and and that was, and that was you know like a normal thing. Mm. And you know, being on that show one time, your price would go up. Right. Right. But now. You know, they see you do four and a half minutes. They want you to do four and a half minutes, four minutes. And they put you on the show. And the club owners know that a lot of those guys can't, like, especially in Boston, to come in back then and call yourself a headliner and have the Boston headliners open for you. Yeah. Yeah, we destroyed a lot of egos. Well, I was going to (laughs) ask you to comment on the fabled Boston comedy scene in the 80s because it was, and I was a, Fan, it was absolutely awesome. I mean, Ugh. and and you're there with guys like Lenny and and yeah. uh, Steve Sweeney, and these are local heroes. Yeah, and many of them are national names. Yeah, uh, Crimmins you mentioned, who's yeah, the subject of a buddy. recent film, just recently passed away. Yeah, and uh, Barry was the great. Barry started a place called the Ding Ho, was Cambridge. a Chinese restaurant in Inman Square in Cambridge. That's yeah. where I began, mm. and to this day, it's still the greatest comedy club ever. So who do you credit as a mentor or mentors? Because you and I were talking and about comedy stylings, and you were giving me some amazing, lovely tips about timing and about audience yeah, yeah. arousal yeah. and all that. Yeah, of, where did you learn this? Well, well, first, Barry Crimmins. He was, Barry was kind of this grumpy guy. <laughs> yeah. And, but he was a soft-hearted, brilliant man. And when people would say, uh, you know, who'd you talk to? I said, Barry Crimmins. And they're like, you talk to Barry Crimmins? And I'm like, because well, I had no preconceived notions of this guy. Is that the proper thing to say? That's, that's very likely the case. You he did know. what I wanted to do. So yeah. I went up and asked him how to do it. And I went back 
the next week and did it. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it was Lenny's show, but Len Lenny's, Lenny had a hernia, bad experience with a hernia. So Crimmins filled in that night for Lenny. It was like my second time on stage. And my introduction was, you know, you got a lot of people come up here and ask you advice and waste your time and they never come back and... This kid actually came back and did it and be nice to him and <laughs> and Barry introduced me and but the so Barry Crimmins helped me a lot mm. a real lot and not just with comedy I was so naive and grew up like I thought I grew up in East Boston you know I grew up in the city I'm worldly <laughs> I didn't realize what a very small community I grew up in and mm. how sheltered my life was mm. and Barry taught me a lot about life in general. And then uh, Lenny Clark, Don Gavin, Steve Sweeney, Kenny Rogerson, like all those guys wanted, number one, be cool, you know, like be a good guy. Mm. Don't be a pain. I was a pain, but I was a pain because I went everywhere. I was just everywhere. And I always asked them, no matter how good or bad I did on stage, my question was always the same. What did I do wrong? And they're like, no, you did fine. I'm like, no, I, I must have done something wrong. I know what I did right. The audience left. So you wanted to learn every yeah. time out, which is a craft. Is You're trying to build your craft. Yeah. And yeah. then they would tell me something to improve what I did. And then the next time they saw me, if I showed them that I actually listened and did what they told me to do, then the next time they would give me, like Barry would, would hire me mostly to drive because they all like to drink. And I was totally sober. I didn't do any drugs. I didn't drink. And I had a nice car because I had a, had a day job. So Barry would ask me to drive him and pay me to drive him. Then talking in the car, he would say, okay, why don't you go up and introduce me? And this is what you do. And then on the way home, he'd tell me how to do a better introduction, what I did wrong. And then after I get good at introducing him, he would say, okay, why don't you do five minutes and then introduce me? And he'd critique my act on the way home. And I learned more in my car that first year or two of doing stand-up. I love it, the story. It I was marvelous. And that, it, that was not just Barry. Like, Sweeney didn't like to drive. And I drove really fast. So they knew I would get them back. Everybody went to the Ding Ho after their show, no matter where you worked. Went back to the Ding Ho to hang out. And... They knew I'd get them back by last call. Wow. That's so, a great story. So your work as a comic uh, reflects who you are, your life, your experiences. What was it that you decided on in terms of your voice and your character and your delivery and all that? Did it start out the way it's now still happening or has it evolved? I tried really hard to figure out who I was going to be on stage. And then I realized after about four years that it's just a natural thing that happens. Mm. Like you can't push it. You can't you can't really create that character. It just kind of grows out of what you are and who you are. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it works that way with like Bobcat Goldthwait's character and you know guy like Stephen Wright I, he, that's real. He's really like that, he you know. Is, yes, he I really. Know, that, that's really his speech pattern yeah, and his. Yeah. At, you know, it's the it, same as me. It's probably a bit exaggerated, and you know, he. Mine is. It's not exactly who I am off stage, but it's very much who I was when I had the feelings I'm expressing. You know, 
So when I, I, I'll get angry when I'm talking about going through a divorce mm. and I try to put myself back in the spot I was when I was going through that divorce. So after about four years, and the way I describe it, how you know it's happening, is when you write a great joke and you know you can't do it. You know, you write, this is a really good joke, but it's not, it doesn't fit into it's my character. You. It's not yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. So wow. that's, that's you know. fascinating. You've worked a lot on the ocean and cruise ships. Yeah. And I've taken cruises over the years, love the comics. It's my favorite thing. And you've got a captive audience. Yeah. But they don't have to be there because they've already right. paid their freight. Right. So what's, what's the basic strategy when you're doing cruise work? It yeah. is, it is so hard to do really well because you have all these people, and it's kind of like, uh, I think it was George Carlin described the difference between working like in Indiana and in Las Vegas. In Indiana, people read an ad that you're playing there months before you're there, and they go, hey, let's get tickets to see the George Carlin. And it, it's like a big event, you know? They plan their whole evening around it. They're going to go out to dinner. They're going to get dressed up. They're going to go to the show. And they have a lot invested in the show. And in Vegas, they're kind of just walking by, go, hey, George Carlin's playing here. Let's go. And it's kind of a last-minute thing. Well, on a cruise ship, they're not paying for it. So they're just like, hey, the comedy show is tonight. And a lot of ships now have comedy clubs. So you do shows every night, which I prefer. I'd rather mm -hmm. work every night. Mm -hmm. And, but the thing is, if I'm working at Nick's in Boston or Giggles in Saugus, Massachusetts, everybody in the crowd is from this area. You know, the majority of the people, they all have the same sensitivities. They all know what winter is like and yeah. what summer in New England is like right. and the fall and mud seasons and rain and and they all fight the same traffic every day and they all see the same thing, you know? So everybody in the audience is pretty much, they, they have the same kind of thinking. Mm -hmm. But when you're on a cruise ship, it's literally people from every corner of the earth. You know, there's people from all over the world, people of all different uh, financial positions. There's older couples there's young couples with brand new kids. There, so the chances of getting the entire audience to laugh all at the same time is very difficult, and you have to get them to buy into your character very quickly. Mm. And so when I come home from a ship and I'm working, I I'm actually thinking like, what the hell are they laughing at? <laughs> because it's so much easier to get the laugh. Well, and they're all laughing at the same stuff at the same time. Yeah, every comedian I've ever talked with talks about the Japanese tourist crowd that comes yeah. in and doesn't get a word of it, doesn't understand. But it is challenging, and it's also you got to be careful to not offend and and all. Oh that. yeah, and yeah. These, these are people paying a good deal of money for their time on the high seas. Oh yeah, and, and, there's a strict and, adherence and, to the if rules. If I try to sprinkle some political stuff in, it it depends like where the ship is cruising out of, and like Carnival Cruise Lines. They'll market a specific area. So if you're doing a cruise out of Charleston, most of the people on the ship are from Charleston, which makes it a little easier. But, you know, when I'm working down at South, they're all screaming stuff about college football. And I don't know <laughs> anything about that. You know, when it's in a town that doesn't have a professional team, you know, so their college team is everything. Right. It's so different. It's and such a and, different and they're yelling at me like they're trash talking. And I'm like... 
I have no idea what you're talking And then they start fighting. There's two factions, you know, <laughs> people from Alabama and people from Louisiana. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know what you guys are talking about. Yeah. Talk amongst yourselves. Yeah. Let me now shift gears completely. Okay. Because we only have a limited time to chat with people on the podcast. And okay. I want to talk to you about the serious stuff. And yep. everything about you, and I've come to know you, I admire. And I particularly admire... The fact that you're a thriver, not just a survivor, but a thriver yeah. post-cancer. Yeah. When a comedian, when an actor, when an entertainer gets sick, it's something that the average Joe says, oh, I know that guy. I saw that guy. There's a, there's a connection we feel, particularly if we've been through it. Yeah. So what happens to you? Tell us the story. Uh, about five years ago, uh, I had a lump in my throat for a long time. I, I, I thought my tonsil was swollen. And... My girlfriend at the time, my wife now, kept telling me, you got to go to the doctor, you got to go to the doctor. I thought I was allergic. I kept changing my diet, and it didn't go away. And one of the cruise lines, I had to go get a physical. And uh, I yes, just a regular physical to prove that you're healthy. Mm -hmm. And I had her look at it, and she said, if it doesn't go away in two weeks, come back. And it didn't go away. Turns out it was stage four throat cancer. Wow. And... Of course, my first thought is, where's the cancer and where are my vocal cords? You know, so luckily it was high up. It was by my tonsil. And your vocal cords are way down your throat. So I knew, no, my first was like, am I going to lose my voice? And the answer to that was no. And But then I had to go through some really serious treatment. And I was out of commission for about a year. Yeah, and this might be the question that is unanswerable, but is there any reason to believe you were susceptible? Did you have any habits? Did you smoke? Did you have any issues with that? Well, I got the cancer from HPV, the ah, human okay. papillomavirus, mm -hmm. which is there's only one way to get it. I, I think we all know that. And now there's a the vaccine, right, for young yeah, people? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. They've had the vaccine. I actually do talks. Uh, to I, I talk to nurses. I've talked to the nurses who administer the vaccine. And a lot of people now want me to go talk to kids in high school mm. to tell them how important it is. Besides the treatment, which is rough, besides the uncertainty, not working, not doing what you love yeah. for such a long time must have been just gut-wrenchingly tough. It, well, I, I couldn't speak. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't. I would sleep 22 hours a day just going to the clinic to get treatments. I mean, it, it was... It was horrible. And uh, my brother David came and lived with me and took care of me for months. And without him, I wouldn't be alive. So Kudos to Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Oh, they're the best, man. Yeah. Dana-Farber, I insisted I, I would not go anywhere. You know, uh, thank God for Obamacare because I, I wouldn't have had any insurance at all. And uh, it saved my life. And... People get upset when I say that, but they ask the wrong questions. You know, they think, you know, what did Obamacare take away from me? And what you should be asking is who took away from you what Joe Yannetti got? Because it wasn't Barack Obama. He offered it to you and someone kept it from getting to you. And where I lived in New Hampshire, they allowed it to get to me and it saved my life. And it the my cousin had really severe leukemia and Dana-Farber cured her and she's been cancer-free for 
decades. And you're at the five-year mark, which is a yes. great milestone. That Here, here, man. I That's just exciting. graduated. Actually, I got to go see my radiation oncologist on Tuesday in three days from now. Yeah. Four days from now. And, and that'll be the last time I have to go see him. But my regular oncologist told me, you graduated. You don't have to come back. It's a great feeling. Yeah. And how has that affected any of your performance, if at all? It's it's really changed my life. It's it's you know, I kind of don't want to use it to you know, to get sympathy. So I try really hard just to make people laugh about it. Mm. And I do it mostly for the people who have survived it. Because people are afraid of it. They're afraid of the word and to make I I have never seen this. I have had people in my audience sobbing. I mean, sobbing and laughing hysterically mm. simultaneously because it's such a relief for them mm. to, number one, know that they weren't the only person who went through it and everybody feels the same way they do. And number two, to make them laugh about this horrible thing. It's this release of because it's just this. You know, like you, you get PTSD from this. Like there are certain words that will trigger something in me. I have to walk away. Absolutely. And and the mental anguish and the, the challenge mentally just to stay in focus with life when yeah. you're facing death. Uh, yeah. Really. Yeah. Well, you you remarkable comeback and Thank a remarkable you. career. And we should let the audience know that you're embarking on an acting and voiceover career. Yes. As I want to stay home. Yeah. Stay home. And, and also, you know, work when you want to work. Right. Right. Well, that's the big change. When you get that close to death. When I first recovered, I just wanted to know that everything still worked. So I took work on cruises again. And, and then I realized, man, I got a hair away from dying. And I'm spending half of my life away from the things I love the most. Mm. So I just chucked everything and now I need to be hired because I'm broke. <laughs> <laughs> Do me one more favor. Share with me what you shared with me earlier. Uh, the little tip about a stand-up. You were telling me that somebody was taking a stand-up class. And yeah. You were not pleased with what they were teaching them. Yeah. But you came up with something that I thought was brilliant. You took a piece of paper and you said, here's how to get a uh, laugh. The wave of... A, the, the wave of laughter. Tell yeah, me about that. There's, it, and it's it's not something I came up with. It's, you know, my friends have taught me this when I was younger. So when when you're just an everyday guy and everyone's telling you, oh my God, you're so funny. You should be a comedian. They're laughing at that person because they know that person's whole history and they know why it's funny for that person to be in that situation. Mm -hmm. But when you're a comedian, you have to develop that almost instantly with a crowd. They have to understand who you are, what your sensitivities are. So your first laugh, it'll go up, you know, let's say a scale of one to 10, it goes up to a three and you want it, it's going to start subsiding. And when it gets to two, you start into the next joke and bring that one up to like a five. And as that, let that come down to the three and then go up to a seven. And when you get to a certain point, let's just call it a 10 where, you know, not, that's not a standing ovation, but a solid laugh. Mm. When you get people up that high and you keep them there for a while, they'll start laughing at everything you say because they've bought into your character. And a lot of people, they'll tell a joke and then they let the audience die all the way down to a zero. And then you tell another joke. And it's just, you're starting from the ground floor. And 
A lot of people don't know that. And if you want to be a comedian, keep that in mind. Well, I thank you for that was a gem bonus extra from the podcast. Joe Yenity, thank you so much, man. And uh, thank wish you. you the best and, and keep doing what you're doing. And make people happy. I have no choice. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back to today's episode in just a moment. This podcast is produced at Chart Productions with technical assistance from Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media. Now, if you're interested in developing your own podcast, whether for business or fun, please get in touch. We're now actively producing a whole bunch of great shows, and with our decades of broadcast experience, we can help you every step of the way produce and push up to the cloud a podcast you can be proud of. Visit chartproductions.com, C-H-A-R-T productions.com, and get in touch if we can be of help. Now, back to today's episode. Thanks to Joe Yanetti, a very funny fella. And now some folks who bend in all kinds of directions. They are incredibly talented. They're members of The Seven Fingers, a contemporary company telling stories using death-defying acrobatics with a life-affirming theatricality unique to their organization. The group is out of Montreal. They've done scores of productions across the world, Broadway, artistic collaborations with renowned international artists and companies. They've done television, fashion, art, and music events. And they're premiering a new show called Passengers, at the Emerson Majestic Theatre in Boston, opening September 25th and running through October 13th. I welcome Sabine Van Rensburg and Bryn Sholkoff to On Mic. Yeah, yeah, so we premiered the show actually last November in Montreal, but this is our first time performing in the U.S. So, so far this year we've gone to Moscow in Russia, um, Santiago, Chile, and we've done a couple of French tours. And now we'll be taking it to the U.S. for these Boston shows. Okay. And Sabine, uh, people have seen, say, Cirque du Soleil in other parts of the country and in Boston. And I'm not saying that you guys are exactly the same, but is it similar in its nature to Cirque? Wow. Well, um, to be honest, I am not sure because I don't get to see the show from out from the outside. So I have actually no idea what... Um, our show looks like exactly as an experience of, of a, an audience member. But I think that we really specialize and Seven Fingers Signature focuses on um, the individuals as an artist and who they are as humans. So we have a lot of personal stories that um, we draw from to create the show. And so I think we really focus on, um, yeah, on the personal side of an artist as opposed to just an, an, an entertainment aspect. I want to get into your your specialties, your athletic specialties, but really, Sabine, you have to be a good actor, in fact, a fine actor, because these are very emotional pieces you're doing. Am I right? Yeah, exactly. So we really try to blend um, the different uh, disciplines between theatrical aspects, musical aspects, dance, and acrobatics. And training for acrobatics we'll get into, but what about theatrical training and, and drama and acting? Did you have that as well growing in? Yes. So in the formation of um, the National Circus School in Montreal, we had uh, acting classes, singing classes, movement classes. Um, so we were really well-rounded in our formation to be able to portray all of these different emotions through physical and acrobatic um, elements. And let's now talk about each of your skill sets, and they're incredible. We'll start with you, Sabine. You're from South Africa, as we've said in the introduction. And when did you know you wanted to be part of a group like this? Um, well, I think it was pretty early on. Both my parents were circus artists. 
So growing up, I really had um, a full-on experience of being raised in a circus family. So yeah, I think fairly fairly early on, I knew it was what I wanted to pursue. And so the natural step would, would be to go to Montreal, where it's really a hub of circus. And um, I have always been more comfortable in the air than on the ground. I'm quite clumsy by nature. So... Um, <laughs> So, yeah. All right. We'll get back to you in a minute, Miss Clumsy. I bet that's a bit of a stretch, <laughs> I think. But Bryn, uh, you're from the U.S. And again, I'll ask the same question. Where does this stem from? Is there a family connection with you? Yeah, I don't have a family connection, actually. Uh, my parents are really supportive of the arts. So I would always go to see Circus Mercus as a kid when oh, I was yeah. growing up. Yeah. Um, Circus Mercus is a Vermont-based youth circus uh, company, uh, and so every summer for two months they perform all around New England and New York, and they do around seventy shows. So that's kind of how I got interested in circus by attending the camp, and then eventually auditioned for the summer tour. So for four summers in high school, I would I would tour around New England, and you know it's a group of thirty kids ranging from ten to eighteen years old, and it was totally like an amazing experience at that age, and that really. Um, or like influenced me or got me thinking that this is I could make this a career and could keep going with it. So then I came to Montreal. Now you, like Sabine, your colleague, uh, enjoy being in the air. Your specialty says here is the tight wire. <laughs> yeah, it's the tight wire. I guess it's, it's in the air. I'm up high, but it's not an aerial discipline. But it definitely requires a lot of um, focus and concentration to you know make sure you don't fall off, um, as well as a lot of, you know, physical, right. I guess, training and a lot of repetition as well to, you know, ingrain it in your body. And, you know, the way that I do it is um, it's not like high wire where they just walk across, you know, super high up. It's more acrobatic and dance based. So the one that I perform on in the show is about five feet high off the ground. And um, there's a spring on the end of the wire, so it allows me to jump and spin and kind of do all that stuff. <laughs> well, I'll ask both of you, start with you, Bryn. People don't realize probably the amount of time it takes to prepare and practice and train and learn your skill. Because every time out, you want to make it perfect and you, you strive mm -hmm. for that. Give me a sense of how many hours in a week or in a day or whatever it is that you guys work before you go on stage. Yeah, so, well, when we were in school, which is, you know, a much more in intense um, training um, environment, I would be doing two hours of tight wire a day, five days a week. So we would train, I mean, our whole day was, you know, from 8 or 9 in the morning until 4 p.m. was circus-based athletic training, and that included, you know, uh, a working out, handstands, flexibility, acrobatics, dance, you know, all the things that kind of go into you know, being able to be a performer as well as really specifically training your discipline. Mm -hmm. So for wire, it required a lot of training. So I had 10 hours a week. Um, for the show specifically, we do three hours of warm up before. Um, so that includes makeup and getting into costume and warming up our bodies and then training all of the individual and group acrobatic um, skills that we need to do before doing the show. Sabine, I want to come back to you. Aerial silks. You need yeah. to explain that for the podcast <laughs> audience, if you will. What does that actually mean? So basically, if you imagine really tall curtains or long pieces of material hanging from the ceiling, and um, I intertwine and wrap up in them and then tumble down them and catch myself on either my <laughs> hands or my ankles, 
Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a really, really awesome discipline to do. I love it. And um, it requires a lot of upper body strength. And um, I think your body just adapts naturally to however many hours you're training. So if I'm training a lot, my hands, the skin on my hands becomes really, really calloused mm. and rough um, because I'm holding my whole weight just in my grip. Um, yeah. Now, audiences generally who love circuses, and I'm one of them, I'm a huge, I can't wait to see you guys in Boston, but audiences mm. are always looking for something more, or the performers, in your case, always want to give something more. Is that a challenge in 2019 when we sort of have seen everything and then you have to top what you did last time? Is that a challenge for the performers and the creators of shows like this? I mean, of course it's a challenge playing to an educated audience, but I always am up for a challenge and I really think that this show brings such a unique aspect to it. Um, the fact that it's so fluidly combining all these different art forms, which is music and dance and acrobatics, that it really, um, yeah. And I think our main goal is really to to strike an emotional chord too with the audience and really let them reflect on their own journey and their own life and their mm. own travel experiences. And so um, I really, yeah. I'm pretty confident that we're able uh, to do it, but who, who knows? I would I would say that, you know, still in 2019, the circus arts are pretty new to a lot of people in their understanding of, you know, what contemporary circus is. And, you know, often when you tell ask, when, when you tell someone that you're a circus performer, they're like, are you a part of Cirque du Soleil? You know, so like they don't, I think that there's still a lot of um, room to educate people of, of what circus can be in terms of combining all these other art forms and the style and the way that you do it and the intention of what you want to, what you want the audience to get from the experience. Mm. I think that's a great point. Uh, it's it's become a much broader art form than the Ringling Brothers model. Exactly. Uh, it's not just entertainment anymore. Adult-centered entertainment as well as thrilling kids because in Passengers, as I'm reading about it, haven't seen it yet, it's tearful goodbyes, it's reunions, it's encounters, it's fate. It's about us in a way, but it's a fantasy at the same time. Yeah, I think it's a, a reflection on the human condition and just the, the experiences that each person will live. And I really believe it's a relatable piece and performance because everybody has had to say goodbye to somebody or everybody has had to leave their home to pursue their dreams. Um, and so, yeah. All right, Sabine, i got to come back to something you said earlier. You said you're clumsy on the ground. I find that <laughs> very hard. I've seen people like you, you just gracefully sort of glide through life. What's an example of not you true, messing up? Not true. Not true, Bryn said. He is clumsy. I cannot. I cannot <laughs> yeah. Bryn will vouch for me. Actually, we're all clumsy. Well, it makes me feel better, quite frankly, because yeah. I have trouble tying my shoes. Let me ask you each a few more things about the circus life or the life in Seven Fingers off stage. You mentioned performing and preparing for your performances. Do you guys uh, travel together much like the circuses of yore? Do you travel in trains or how does it all work out uh, off off so, stage so we're um eight acrobats and five technicians and we all travel together usually we'll fly um let's say it's from montreal to europe we'll take a, a plane but sometimes if we're staying within europe we will all get on a train all together um and yeah it's like a super tight-knit family with the all the the arguments and all the love like a normal family <laughs> um <laughs> 
So, yeah. Oh, that's great, because that's old circus stuff. I mean, uh, yeah. the idea I mean, that we it's... Don't a... have, we don't have caravans. We stay in hotels, fortunately, but um, I would I would be happy to, to put up in a caravan for a bit of time, no problem. How about you, Bryn? Would you settle for that, or are you happy the way the arrangement is I now? would be uh, open to the experience, <laughs> but I don't think that for a three-year uh, touring that it would be uh, my ideal situation. <laughs> you never know until you try, though. I've talked with thousands of people in my career about their lives and their work, and your work, is it's an artistic endeavor, but it's laced with danger every single time out. Do you think about that, or do you have a way of psyching yourself up to say, well, nothing's going to happen, and if it does, I'll deal with it? How do you deal with the just the scary part of it? It's definitely um, calculated risk, and we train really hard to not only learn how to fly, but also to learn how to fall. Um, and I think there is a mental aspect. I have... Uh, a very specific way of dealing with stress or coping with fear that I really talk myself into um, confidence, I guess. Um, and so, but I guess it's a different preparation for everyone. I know some people have no fear at all. Uh, some people have a lot and it actually prevents them from doing certain things. So it's a, it's a really case by case thing. But I think the more you train and the more you trust your body mm. and you let your muscle memory take over, the, the easier it is to control your mental aspect. Mm-hmm. Bryn, any yeah, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I would say at a, um, like I was saying before, kind of that a lot of it is a lot of it in circus and like kind of learning these tricks is repetition and repetition to the point where, you know, your body just does it even if you're not necessarily, even if you don't think that you're in the the right state of mind to do it. And I think what's great about performing is it kind of forces you to to be really present in your body and to say, okay, you know what? I can do this. Like, I don't have any time to psych myself out and I don't have time to overthink it. And I, and you kind of just go. So I think there's, you just do it. (laughs) So there's something like that's really special about performing versus training that kind of puts you in this heightened sense of yourself. And like the adrenaline kind of takes over, which of course you need to still not let that get to your head and not let you just say, oh, well, now I can do anything. You know, you still have to really kind of stay humble in a way and, you know, really focus on what you're doing. But, right. yeah, I think, I, think I, I think the trust comes from, you know, just not doubting yourself and to yeah. know, like, okay, you know what, I've done this so many times, and if something starts to go wrong, like, I'm ready to kind of conquer it. And, of course, sometimes people get injured, but that's just you know, I'm part of it. Knock on wood. <laughs> now, both of you sound like very nice young people. I'm not going to guess ages. Certainly not a, certainly not Sabine. That's that's rude for a man to talk about a woman's age. But I want to tell you that I'm hooked on America's Got Talent on TV. And I, I've noticed more and more older performers. And there was this one act, Colombian or Argentinian, a young man of 64 balancing on his hands, doing handstands with an 85-year-old. And I thought to myself, this is great. It gives people like me old-timers like me, a lot of hope. Do you guys have a, an, a sense as to how long you can do this? And how old is the oldest member in the troupe? Yeah, so basically it really depends on your discipline. So, for example, something with, with less impact, like a juggler or a clown, can go on for much longer. Um, also, hand balancing, too, is once, uh, once you really find that balanced position, it's less strength and more about technique, so you can continue doing that for longer. Versus a high-impact acrobat, Um, they might end their career earlier. It also depends if you've had many injuries or if you've been very lucky and you have no no big injuries that you're trying to recover from. So um, 
it also, as a woman, I would say if I wanted to have children, um, either mm. I would have them quite young and then get back into training, or I would wait and try to delay it as long as possible right. and then have them in my early 30s or mid-30s and then, you know, take a step back from my career. Right. Um, I do know the oldest person in our cast is 31 or 30. Oh. Um, but I do know, I've seen, I've seen some really incredible shows with the, where the youngest person in the cast is 30. And so... It's really, it's really a case by case or person to person, depending on how long your career can go on for. And how long you want to do it as well? Yeah. You know, some people love that you, you, they kind of have a ten-year uh, uh, career. career. There's the word, sorry. Um, and you know, after that, they're like, oh, maybe I don't want to, you know, travel and perform, and I want to approach um, this career in a different, in a different way, like in you know, being a director or like kind of going into the choreographic mm. side or working on the business side of the companies or some people are like, you know what, I'm, I'm ready to move on to something else. So I think they're, you know, it also drives from, you know, how much you want to do it or what, what your life goals are. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm so relieved to know that there's room for clowns at any age. I'm very happy to hear that <laughs> from <are>. both of you. <laughs> not too late. Well, I want to say, first of all, it, delightful to meet you. Unfortunately, we're not doing this in person, but maybe someday we will. But Sabine and Bryn, thank you so much for being such great representatives of Seven Fingers. And at the Arts Emerson Theater, what a beautiful way to celebrate the 10th anniversary of that amazing theater. And uh, I wish you guys great success in your USA tour and just keep going from here. You're doing great. Thank you so much for having us. We're looking forward to being back and playing on this beautiful stage. And thanks to all of you for listening and to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media for his help in sending these episodes right up to the cloud so ably. Until next time, this is Jordan Rich saying, as always, be well so you can do good. Peace. Peace.